Welcome to Reinventing Home, a digital magazine about culture, creativity, and character. I'm your host, Valerie Andrews, and my guest today is the award-winning novelist, Carol Edgarian. Her first book, Rise, the Euphrates, is about the devastating loss of home and family during the Armenian Genocide and how this trauma echoes for three generations here in America. Her next book, Three Stages of Amazement, is a portrait of a home that's falling apart during a tech bust in Silicon Valley. Her most recent offering, Vera, shows how people had to reinvent their lives after the great San Francisco earthquake. Critics have said that Ergarian's writing is so good it can raise the hairs on the back of your neck, and I've been impressed by her deep understanding of the heroism of daily life. Years ago, I wrote her a fan letter, and that was the beginning of an extended conversation on home as a central character in the American story. Carol, I'm pleased to have you here with us today. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Carol, I'd like to start with your first book. In Rise the Euphrates, the main character is a woman who's lived for the Armenian Genocide, and her house just bristles with her fierce determination to survive and to nourish and protect the people she loves. It's really centered on three generations of Armenian Americans. The first, the grandmother having survived the Armenian Genocide, but the narrator of the novel is Setalun, who's third generation and half Armenian. And the book is not in in any way autobiographical, except the, the key aspect of trying as a third generation Armenian American to really unearth how to hold this legacy of a genocide, an unreconciled genocide. Um, that was interesting to me. My father was Armenian, and so I'm half Armenian. And the story of the genocide was sort of a ghost that that lived in our house, but was not often discussed. In my fiction, I try to unearth some of the things that I have questions about. And the question that drove me in writing Rise the Euphrates is what, what of trauma gets passed on through the generations and how to heal that and what of the story gets passed on and how does each generation sort of turn over the inherited story and also make a new story that is, that is their present day. What I found so powerful about your writing was that the sense of loss actually breathes in the walls of the house. You can feel mm-hmm. the emotion in every room. And, and I'm, I'm wondering how, as a writer, you were able to capture that. I'm glad that comes across. This is an American problem, this, this notion of displacement. So many of us have, have the story of displacement in our lives. And that sense of a lost home, and whether that is a physical homeland, having come to this country by choice or not by choice, so it's physical home, to be displaced from an ancestral home, but also it's a spiritual displacement. You know, where is that safe place? Where is that resting place? I think that's a, that's a particularly American problem, and it's something I've looked at in all my books. 
Well, there's also a clash in, in rise between the different characters and their sense of home. The third generation really takes it for granted. Um, the older ones, they're still wounded. They're still smarting. And so your built-in conflict in the novel is how can these people even begin to talk about what their definition of home is when it's so different? That's right. That's right. But isn't that true? How do the generations talk to one another? How do they find that common ground? That is, by definition, dramatic and is a daily sort of sword fight, right? But it's also, I hope, driving towards moments of, of real connection. And those moments of real connection have to be earned. And in the novel, when in Rise of the Euphrates, when finally there is that moment when people can let down their swords and just be, that I hope invites the reader to feel that too. Well, the book's important today because there are so many people coming into this country and there are so many generations with different expectations of home. And some people are just unable to talk about certain things. I mean, Cassard keeps it all bottled up for years and years and years. And it's really not until the end of her life that we see some kind of resolution. So I'm wondering if there's a council here that we're dealing with a big scene and we need to be patient. I think we do. I mean, here we've just marked the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Last year, during this traumatic period of COVID, the BLM movement came forward. And as a country, we had to really face the trauma, the unassuaged essential scar of slavery in this country, right? These are issues that aren't so different than the Armenian genocide. We are a traumatized nation on so many levels. How do we deal with that? How do we unpack it so that it doesn't fester and gain more power? And at the same time, and I think this is really important, how do we find joy? How do we, how do we find hope? I think for a novel to succeed, or at least what I try for, is, is that what's at stake feels, feels essential, like news of the day. It has to have that feeling of urgency. But it also has to bring a reader to a place of joy, a place of humor. It has to be entertaining. Well, you did that in your second book, with just with the title alone, Three Stages of Amazement. I mean, who could not want to open a book with that title? <laughs> and, and this starts with a household under siege, but this is not a generation that has, has been living with the trauma of loss in the past. They are living with a very real trauma in the present, which is the Great Recession. And your novel opens with a gathering of bright young things from Silicon Valley during the tech bust. The American dream is about to fall apart. And we see a young couple who are about to be tested on every level. What drew you to this examination of home? The economic collapse of 2008 seemed to me a moment when the old American dream died. This sense that every generation with the right schooling and the right ambition could exceed could rise, could claim the golden ring of American bounty. I think that 2008 was a recalibration and it was a rude awakening, kind of the jig was up. So here you have a young couple who seem to have everything going for them and the fates challenge them on every level, not only economically, but they've, they've suffered the loss of a child. 
their marriage is really being tested, their hope is being tested. And all the characters in the book, multi-generations, they're in a moment of crisis. They're in a moment where they've got to recalibrate everything they thought was true about their lives and about their expectations. You know, going back to this idea of questions, I always start with questions. And for three stages of amazement, I was guided by two questions, and they really bookend the novel. First question is, what is grace? And I mean that in a secular way of where is real connection? Where is that moment of resting? Where is that moment when things are right? And the other side of it, though, is what is enough? I think that's a really interesting question for fiction and for life in general. What is enough? Like, when do we stop striving and we say, this is enough to use your framing? Isn't that home? Home is where it's right. It's a place where you're okay. It's sanctuary. It's sanctuary. Yeah. Well, the first few pages of this novel, this is creepy baby struggling to breathe that feels like the metaphor for the whole book. Everyone is struggling for air on some level, and the marriage feels like it's on life support. Yeah, I love that. That does capture it. And in the crisis, even in the worst moments, there is possibility for connection. There's possibility for joy. There's possibility for folly. I mean, one of the things that someone asked me recently, you know, why did you become a writer? And I I realized that my preoccupation since I was really young was I was fascinated by what makes people tick. What makes people go? Why do they do the crazy things they do? And what joy it is to dream up these characters and throw them together and watch their folly with a lot of empathy, and also with discrimination. We are creatures of desire, and particularly in story, you know, characters want things, and they want them immediately. There's nothing sort of casual about desire in fiction. And what happens when they can't get what they want? What happens when they get tripped up? How how do they maneuver? There's a really interesting way that Charlie Pepper gets tripped up in this. He's trying to create this company so that he can be a success in the eyes of his wife, so that she will love him, so that he can save all these lives with his medical device company, but he forgets to come home. Yeah, yeah. He's such a do-gooder. He's so involved in succeeding on all the levels, and you could even argue on the right levels but that he forgets the most important thing, and that is his family. He can't do everything. So if you can't do everything, what do you decide to do, and what do you then decide to do well? Like, where do you put your heart? Where do you put your effort? Aren't we all up against that, of the too muchness? This is the really big theme in the books, in the age of ambition, somehow home and sanctuary became obsolete. We got so involved in the striving that the whole arc of the story is how do we come down from that pinnacle of thinking we have to do it all. And hasn't the last year and a half taught us new lessons about that? We've all been in lockdown. The entire world 
for the first time in our lifetimes are experiencing the same thing. And what lessons are we going to take out of this moment? That's interesting to me. I don't have the answer for that. But if everyone has had to slow down, are we immediately going to speed up? Are we headed for the roaring 20s once COVID lifts? Or have we changed? Well, your third book, in a way, is a kind of preamble to this conversation. You were bringing out a book about the 1906 earthquake in California, the great one that, that drove people out of their homes and made everybody scramble to survive. And this book came out just as we were scrambling to survive with the pandemic. And I wonder what you see as the connection between that book and what we're living through now. I finished Vera in January of 2020, a month to two months before we all went into lockdown. You know, I'm always looking for those moments where there is a crisis, where society is being challenged, where there's a political aspect. You know, 1906 Earth, uh, San Francisco, the mayor was corrupt. He was about to be indicted on the morning that the great quake occurred. <laughs> and what got me thinking about all that was the lead up to the 2016 presidential election and thinking about our society at really a crossroads where so many of the norms were being challenged and obliterated. How we agreed to treat each other, how we agreed to what was true and what was untrue. All those aspects seemed up. I thought how that the 1906 quake, that within the space of 45 seconds, society can collapse. Everything that is up suddenly gets challenged in, in a really primal way. And coming out of that, who and what rises? You know, is there a moment for recalibration, for reinvention, coming out of such an epic disaster? And I also wanted to write an adventure story that centered on a girl, a girl who was contrary, who was not the, quote, norm that society would expect. And Vera is, of course, the daughter of the most successful madam in town. And the madams of 1906 San Francisco were revered. They were the power brokers. And certainly her mother was a power broker, but she's not living with her mother before the quake. And coming out of the quake, Vera has to really find her people. She's kind of a half-orphan in the beginning of the story. She's housed, but living on the margins in the beginning of the quake. And then she loses home, as does everyone in town. I mean, the 1906 quake, 500 city blocks burned. Um, you know, there was the quake and then, of course, four days of fire. And a quarter of a million homeless people all of a sudden in the city. Well, somehow she makes her way to her mother's household, which is empty. And she pulls together an extraordinary crew of people that really reflect the cultural diversity of the city today. And I'd like you to talk for, for a couple of minutes about the diversity of this group who end up living with Vera under her aegis. Right. Well, you know, there's Vera, there's Tan, who is 
Vera's mother, Rose, is major domo. He's her butler. He's her cook. He runs the household. He is an incredibly adept, skilled person. He's also a Chinese man living in 1906. So despite all his accomplishment, his inherent dignity, he has to live in the basement of this grand house on a dirt floor with cast off furniture in a chamber pot. Tan became a really central character to the book. He starts as Vera's rival and ends up as her essential partner. Also, there are the prostitutes who are destitute coming out of the quake and willy-nilly find their way to Vera's door. And they are this wise, joyous chorus that become her people, that ultimately become her real chosen family. And there's Valentine, there's capability, there's mercy, and each has his or her own story and their sense of what is home, that they show, they show Vera different sides of what it is to be part of a family. I love the names. You know, you're talking about love, ability, and mercy as the things that we need to, to run a household and to bring people together after a great tragedy. So your, your names are just beautifully, beautifully chosen. Thank you. I think of names as destiny. So the names become very important to me. It occurs to me that we still are living in a kind of provisional post-earthquake world right now. We've been changed politically, as you've talked about in this novel. We've been on the brink in many different ways. We're all a little bit loopy because we don't know where we are in the world anymore, which, which is, is the feeling I would imagine people have. I have not lived through a major earthquake, but the sense that the ground beneath you isn't trustworthy anymore. And that lasts for a long time. Absolutely. And I think we're in that, for sure, we're in that moment right now. And I would suggest that we've changed, but we don't know how we've changed. And for me, that's the power of fiction, to to help us make sense of the how and the why, and to build some of the essential connections that the news of the day can't, can't provide. Vera says, all my life, I've been waiting for a catastrophe greater than my birth. Mm. You know, (laughs) that's sort of the starting place of her story. I'm always writing toward what I don't know, toward what I wonder about. And it's through the writing and through how the characters develop that I know more. And I think we don't know coming out of this who we are. And there's hope of who we are, but we're, we're constantly being barraged with the underbelly of our society, of all the negativity. It feels like both a dark period, and I suspect it's also a period when we're moving forward in new ways that could be generative. I mean, climate change, you know, it, it, it was inter- it's interesting having written a book that's <laughs> that has a disaster at its center we're in this unfolding disaster, not just the pandemic, but climate and on so many levels. And I think we're all, I know I feel shell-shocked. And I think to use your phrasing, unmoored, you know, what is next and who, who are we? 
Well, the thing that can help us most, I think, in a time like this is um, learning more about our myths and stories that have to do with displacement. And that's, that's why I found it such a balm to go back this last month in preparation for our talk and read through your novels. Because in, in Rise, you talk about the importance of myths from Noah's Ark and that first displacement to the many different stories we've had about losses that have shaped our families. And I'm wondering what myths and what stories sustain you? What other writers feed you when you're asking these big, deep questions? Every writer has, to, has her shelf of the books you go back to again and again and again. We are coming in on a, a story that precedes us by hundreds and hundreds, not thousands of years, that feeling that there are voices on my shoulders that are my family. And they're also in terms of literature, you're coming in on a very long conversation. So I always go back to the Russians, Tolstoy, Turgenev, Chekhov. They're a starting point for me. Certainly Virginia Woolf, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, early Toni Morrison. I always reread E.L. Doctorow and Welty. Recent finds in the last 10 years, Penelope Fitzgerald, Jane Gardam, Edward P. Jones. I think his work is extraordinary. If you haven't read his short stories, they're amazing. I begin every day with poetry just to get the language flowing through me. Um, but it is also my job and my joy as one of the founders of Narrative to read a lot of new writers coming up. And it's really exciting to see what is bubbling, what my fellow writers are working on, thinking about, conjuring out of all of this complexity that we're living through. And it's a really exciting time for story, for new voices coming to the fore that haven't had the stage. So I'm reading widely, but you know, once I get deep enough into a book, it's the characters who talk to me. And at a point, it's funny, one of my daughters said to me the other day, she said, you know, you get that glazed look, and I, <laughs> I know you're living in the novel, I know you're here in body at the dinner table, <laughs> but, you're, but you're, you're really in your book, and, it, and this is sort of when you know you've struck a vein. Um, the characters become more real to you in some ways than life. You know, they get, they get very active. They, get, they, they take up a lot of shelf space. Well, there is that sense when you finish writing of, of having to part with them, too. It's a huge loss. It's a huge loss. I mean, it's been great since, since Vera came out in March that I've been chatting all around the country via Zoom about her and, and her people. And it's been great because I've been a little lovesick for her. I miss her. Well, you know, you mentioned that you start each day with poetry, and one of the things I loved discovering was your conversations about what different words mean. Well, it's it's actually an Instagram live feed. I took the summer off to start some new work, but I'm just about to start it up again, and it's called The Word, Please. And for any of you listeners, please follow me on Instagram, see the 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 initial C. Edgarian is my handle. I love the story that every word has. Every word has its origin and through time has changed. When you think of the word, the word vote, its origin is vow. And doesn't that 
change oh. and give sort of the hallowed con- connotation to every time we vote, we are making a vow. So I love the story of words. So each week I take a word, a word that is talking to me in some way, and I love getting suggestions from folks. And I sometimes I bring on guests to amplify their association with that word. And it's really fun. I love doing it. It's for all the word nerds out there. Well, you know, this issue of our magazine is titled The Alchemy of Reading, Writing, and Eating. Well, I love to cook. And, you know, my dear Armenian father used to begin the day literally at breakfast asking what's for dinner. (laughs) I mean... This intense preoccupation with food. Uh, my my grandmother was an amazing cook, and you know she would spend all day. She would either cook for for the church. She thought nothing of cooking for a hundred people. And that sense, of, you know, returning that sense of what happens around the table and how do we nourish ourselves. I love feeding people. When I'm writing, it's often the thing I forget about. So I come to the end of the day, I sort of pick my head up and it's like, it's okay, what's fuel? I don't know if you have this, this ritual, but Sundays have become my day to cook. And I think in part, I do that to go back to my roots, my earliest roots, when Sunday was the day that my extended family sat at the table after church. We all sat down, and I missed that. You know, this is reminding me of a theme that I've been more and more aware of in the new fiction that's been coming out, especially in the, in the pieces I've seen in The New Yorker lately, which is that we're seeing more about cooking and reading and housekeeping. I don't think we can underestimate what we've been through in the last year and a half, two years. Everybody's been housebound. It's only natural, like denied a lot of our our normal pleasures. What's for dinner? What's the treat in the day? (laughs) If we can't, I mean, don't separate me from my bar of chocolate or, you know, bad things will happen. George Saunders had a piece, a fictional piece in the New Yorker where objects are speaking to him. They're coming alive. And they reminded me of Tom Robbins' incredible book where you had can of beans and dirty sock having an adventure going through the entire United States. And so why can't inanimate objects have lives? Well, I think they do. One of my most treasured possessions is a teacup that survived the the 1906 quake and a very dear friend gave it to me as a talisman as I was drafting Vera. And the cup looks as if it's bronzed. And that's because it lived through the great fire. I'm looking at it right now. It sits on my desk and I have this collection of those kinds of objects that I've acquired from my various books. And they have great power for me. You know, if I hold them, they, they give me juice. They also remind me of what is essential. You know, in, in story, I think story essentially has to be about generosity. So from where I sit, I'm constantly thinking, how many gifts can I give the reader? Can I evoke all the senses as my reader walks through a scene, walks through a story? Can I, can I move them? Can I open their hearts? Can I make them laugh? 
yeah, can I make them cry or at least feel something they haven't felt or remind them of a place they haven't been to in their lives? Can I leave enough openings deliberately so they bring their subjectivity, they bring their lives into the story? When I read your novels, I feel held and contained in this world that is so rich and so full on so many different levels and that in some way provides this sense of grace and home and sanctuary. This is one of the things that I think reading can do for us right now when we're feeling so battered is that it can help us find the way back to the center of the maze where we have these treasured concepts. Thank you for that. I'm so glad you feel that. I didn't know this line until I wrote it, which seems an odd thing to say. But when I put down these two lines, it sort of became the fulcrum of, of Vera. And I think speaks to what you just said. I think of our lives, their savor and spark, and all the ways we never could resist the three blind kings of want, stupidity, and brashness. The heart leaps, the head conjures, the soul yearns. Desire being the one renewable fuel we have on earth. Here is how we burned. Hmm. Carol, I just want to encourage all of our readers and listeners to go out and buy your books and steep themselves in an incredible experience (laughs) of home and sanctuary and language and poetry. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us and for sharing your time with us today. Oh, thank you. Such a joy to be with you, Val.